it should be clear now to all of us that what we're doing here, this practice, is the development of mental factors, specific mental factors, wholesome mental factors, that we're trying to develop. When we come and we begin this retreat, we have our mental and physical habits and mental factors that contribute to them. When we come here, we come into a situation which in some ways is ideal for practice. Or at least we have a view that it's an ideal situation for practice. And we have an idea what ideal practice is. But at the beginning of the retreat, this ideal that we have just exists in our imagination. We haven't put it to work yet. We haven't tested it. It's something like having a model that we're going to imitate. Other retreats have been like this, so we'll do this retreat the same way. So we come and we begin this retreat in with our ideal of what practice is. And after a while, we begin to notice how other people are practicing, and our idea of what ideal practice is shifts a little bit. And sometimes we're not really aware of how it shifts, or what our relationship to the shift is. We see other yogis, and we see how they sit, how they walk, how they eat. We listen to Dharma talks and we hear what the real Dharma is really like. We hear stories from the teachers about their practice at different times, or we hear stories about different monks or nuns at the time of the Buddha. And somehow we get a picture or we get an image or an ideal of what practice really is, or we look at who we think are good yogis and we say, oh, that's what good practice really is. If we don't see that we have established a certain form or a certain ideal in our mind as the best way or the only way or the ideal way to practice, we may become attached to it. We may become attached to an ideal that gets in the way of our actual practice. In fact, some of us may make the ideal the goal of practice. If I can just look like, or appear like, or act like I think the good yogi is supposed to act, then that's the goal of my practice. So we make efforts. But the real goal of practice is wisdom. And it's very difficult to see wisdom externally in anyone. But our ideals can help us in practice, they can inspire us, they can arouse our faith and energy, or they can hinder us if they arouse a lot of disappointment and aversion or desire for something else. What I want to talk about tonight is 
some of our attitudes and beliefs and ideals that we have accumulated before, since before we came here and since we've been here. Some yogis will recognize some of their own tendencies, and some may not. But, let's see. The first one that I want to talk about is the idea that silence is good practice or best practice. We come here to IMS, and of course it's in a rural place, it's very peaceful, and it's quite quiet compared to the city where many of us live. And so immediately we get quite attached to the silence of just being in nature, being out of the city. And it's very spacious, and we have quite a lot of outdoors to roam around in, and quite a big building. And then we begin to practice, and the first few days is just, you know, first few days of retreat. And after a couple of days, when we start to get a little bit quieter, and we're really kind of getting into our meditation and making efforts, we start to notice that the yogi sitting next to us is quite noisy. Wears one of those nylon things that rustles around, or coughs, or has the sniffles, or makes too much noise in the dining room. You know, all the noises that the other yogis make. And this sets up a reaction in our mind. Maybe just, a little ir- maybe just a little irritation if our meditation is good. Maybe full-blown anger if it's not so good. Such mental factors, both irritation and anger, and wanting that person to stop, or wanting the staff to quiet down, or not wanting so many cars. Whatever noise it is, we don't want the pipes to bang, we don't want the construction. Whatever it is, not wanting to it exist is an unwholesome mental state. Wanting it to stop is also an unwholesome mental state. These mental factors are not good practice. But it's our ideal to have a quiet place. Sharon mentioned, I think a night before she went, or sometime recently, about practicing in Burma. For those of you who've been there, you'll recognize. She mentioned that in the meditation center where we were practicing, they have, it's a large place, about 20 or 30 acres, I guess. And every couple of hundred yards, they have a big piece of metal that somebody comes around and bangs on every hour. So at one o'clock, they bang one, two o'clock, they bang, ding, ding. Three o'clock, they bang, ding, 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 all, all 24 hours. And there's about, as she said, 15 or 20 of these in the meditation center. So for about 10 minutes around every hour, you hear a sequence of ding, 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 <laughs> getting closer to you and then getting further away from you wherever you are. But that's the least of the noise at the ecta. I mean, really, there are on an average, four or five hundred yogis meditating there all the time, and there must be a staff of a couple hundred yogis. There's constant construction going on of at least two or three buildings. So there's several dozen, if not a hundred or so, workers. There's often many dogs. Sometimes they have a lot of guests that come to eat meals there, up to 500 at a time. And sometimes, particularly during the 
New Year's festival, which is in April. Burma's in another realm. New Year's is in April. During that time, there's about five, somewhere between four, five, or six thousand people meditating there. So it's not really quiet. It's it's not really a very peaceful place. There's just tremendous activity, noise, and hubbub all the time. What are you going to do if you go to practice there? Your idea surely isn't your ideal place to practice, or it doesn't fit your idea of what the ideal place to practice is. But when you go, you're taught, or you're told, as you are here, to guard your senses. Don't look around. Don't listen. Don't think about what, everything that's going on. Difficult to do, but it's good practice. Another time when I was in Burma practicing in uh, 1988, there were six weeks in Burma when everyone in the country, except for about a thousand people who had been running the government, they were protesting for democracy. And all day, all night, for six weeks, you could hear shouting in the street. Hundreds of thousands, on some days, millions of people in Rangoon were shouting that they wanted democracy and marching around. And everyone in the country was playing the radio news, the Voice of America, every time it came on. You couldn't avoid the noise. You couldn't avoid the excitement. Everyone, even in the Yekta, was excited. How are you going to practice in such a situation? To bring it down to IMS level, when I was also practicing in Burma, there was another yogi there from America. And he'd been there a little while, and he liked to talk. He knew me when I was here at IMS before, so he liked to talk. Every day he found some reason to talk to me, some excuse. He got a letter, he has a question, he's got a comment. Did I see this? Do I want that? Anything to talk. I didn't want to talk, I wanted to practice. And so I got kind of irritated with him. So I told him, well, you know, we're here to practice, we're not here to talk, so please don't come talk to me. That was just in one ear and out the other. He was back the next day, ready to talk again. Whether I talked back or whether I spoke with him or not didn't matter. He just came and talked. Whether I was sitting in my room or on the way to the dining room or sitting in the meditation, it didn't matter. He would come. He liked to talk. So I had to do something, of course, because irritation was getting the better part of my practice. So I said, all right, I'll just note standing. When he comes to talk to me, I'll just note standing. So I noted standing, standing, standing as he was talking to me, and I was very irritated still. So I started noting irritation, 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 and I was still irritated. So I noted, all right, hearing, 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 and I was still irritated. I tried to avoid him. I did everything except note what was going on. When I finally got, after several months, actually, I'm sorry to say, (laughs) after several months, I finally caught on. What you're supposed to do is know what you're aware of at the time, not try to avoid it. So when I saw him, I noted seeing. When I disliked him, I noted disliking. When I thought about him, I noted thinking. When I felt unpleasant, I noted unpleasant. When I heard him, I noted hearing. 
when I understood what he said, I noted thinking. He made me practice really well. My practice actually, because of him, my practice actually got very good because I really had to be super diligent to catch every little glimmer of arising in the mind in relationship to him. And he was around. So I saw him many times each day. And so it was really a good practice to have him around, as irritating as he was. I'm not suggesting that anyone here becomes such. <laughs> no, 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 no. I'm just telling you what happened with me when I was there. Obviously, I had to let go of my idea about what ideal practice is, or even that you shouldn't speak, or that we're all practicing noble silence. Having that idea didn't help much in that situation. All I could do was condemn his action and feel irritated. Didn't get me anywhere. So even though we are here practicing noble silence, and we are trying to be quiet and respect each other's practice, we still have to learn how to note. We have to arouse the energy. We have to have the understanding, the wisdom. We've got to have the mindfulness, the interest, the desire, the faith to do it. All of these are wholesome mental factors. If we just hang on to our the way it should be in irritation, we don't make much progress. So this is silence, our idea of silence being necessary for practice. The second topic I'd like to speak about is sitting. We come and we get the instructions or we see the schedule, sit an hour, walk an hour, sit an hour, walk an hour, eat, sit an hour, walk an hour, sit an hour, walk an hour, eat, sit an hour, walk an hour, sit an hour, walk an hour, tea, sit, talk, sit and walk, sleep. (laughs) Pretty simple, huh? So we sit for a couple days, we sit for a week, and suddenly we find out, hey, the sitting's getting pretty good. It's not quite so painful. I feel actually a little bit comfortable. And we say, my concentration must be getting a little bit better. So we say, look, if I sit an hour and I get this concentrated, if I sit two, I'll get twice as concentrated. So we try to sit a little longer and walk a little less. So maybe we're going to try to sit an hour and a half, walk a half hour, Maybe we'll try to sit two hours and only walk (laughs) a short time. Or we sit in our room so that we can sit long time. What happens? We find that we run into more pain. We maybe run into more restlessness. Very likely we also run into a lot of sloth and torpor. We get attached to the idea that if we can sit a long time, it's best practice. And we also get averse to the idea that walking is a good or equally as good meditation. We have desire to sit longer, unwholesome mental state. Aversion for walking, also unwholesome mental state. Not good practice. Another story. When I was... um, 
after several years of practice, when I was still a beginner, I used to come here quite often. And I had a good friend who came to meditate here. And for some reason, she was very, she had a very good meditation at one time. And just within a matter of days of being here, she started sitting very long hours, three or four hours. And after a couple of weeks, she was up to five or six or eight hours. And after a couple more weeks, she was up to a dozen or 15, 16 hours at a time, sitting in this hall. Would come in, sit down, 16 hours later, she'd get out. I was happy to know her. I had, really, I did have some sympathetic joy. I also had a lot of envy, jealousy, kind of wishing I could do it. Not wholesome mental states. Sympathetic joy, wholesome. But the envy, the jealousy, wishing I could do it, and etc., etc., etc. Not good practice. So I began to judge myself. Hmm. My practice isn't so good. I can't sit for 60, I can't sit for two hours. <laughs> so I began to think, oh, my practice is no good. Disappointment sets in. Lack of energy sets in. No mindfulness sets in. All of these are unwholesome mental factors. From having an idea, from this idea of good practice being able to sit a long time, sneaking in, coloring and skewing my own practice, I didn't see it clearly, that I was attached to this idea. So I suffered. One yogi was here before, told me that he had heard about people being able to sit a long time, so he was quite a beginner also. So he said one time he made a determination, he was just going to sit for six hours, period, that's it. So he sat down, six hours later he got up. But he was so lame that he wasn't able to sit for several days afterwards. <laughs> Is this good practice? Not likely. When I got to Burma at the Mahasi Center, they have a schedule, hour sitting, hour walking, hour sitting, hour walking. I like to talk, so I talked to some of the Burmese monks there, and <clears throat> they told me about this one Mahasi Center in southern Burma, where the Sayadaw there specializes in long sittings. And anyone who goes there, he has them sit. He starts to train them to sit long time. And within a month, most people are sitting 24 hours. No matter what age, and in fact, in Burma, most, a lot of young people practice, 15, 16, 17 year old, when they just get out of school before they go to university. They all go to the yekta to practice. Within that period of time, they're within a month or two, most of them are sitting up to 24 hours. Not only sitting, they also stand for 24 hours meditating, and they also lie down, awake meditating, for 24 hours. <laughs> now, if you think that sitting long time is good practice, that's where you want to go. But it's not necessary. You might remember that Joseph mentioned a while back that Deepama told him one time that he should sit for two days. That's twice as long. That's 48 hours. If you didn't catch this kind of idea of this is good practice going into your mind, it's not likely you'd want to try that. 
but you might have a lot of fear or anxiety about that being the type of practice you have to do. This fear and this anxiety is also not a wholesome mental factor. To have that as your idea of good practice is not good practice. However, sitting for an hour can be good practice if you have the understanding that you can develop mindfulness, energy, concentration, faith in that period of time. It's not to say that long sitting is bad. There comes periods of time in in people's sitting, in people's practice, when it's very easy to sit a long time, or the mindfulness is so sharp, the energy is so balanced, that it's very easy. And the mindfulness stays alert. To sit longer is all right, of course. And it's not because you have an ideal that I must sit a long time that you're doing it. But hearing about people who can sit a long time can be very inspiring. Because, you know, sometimes you sit and it's really difficult to get through an hour without shifting around a dozen times. And to hear about people who can sit long is very nice, actually. I have been inspired by that. One time, Sayadaw told me, I went to report to him, and I was, I was sitting at that time two or three hours, and not balanced either, it was pretty much of a struggle. It was, I had an ideal that sitting a long time was good, so I was managing up to two or three hours. I was also getting a little bit proud of that. Pride is also not a good mental factor. So I went to report to Sayadaw, and he said, oh, now you said you can, you can try to sit a little longer. And I said, well, how long would you like me to sit? And he said, I'd like you to sit an hour and a half. And I said, but I'm already sitting two and a half or three hours. And he said, well, you should only be sitting an hour <laughs> or an hour and a half. He said, the reason you have so much pain is because you sit too long. I said, oh, you mean pain? <laughs> pain isn't good practice? That type of pain, you don't have to generate pain to have good practice. And yet, somehow, it can sneak into our mind as, if I'm not in pain, somehow it's not quite good practice. (laughs) So he told me, and I practiced thereafter, that if you just follow the schedule, one hour sit, one hour walk, and you're diligent, I mean, you sit down and you try not to move for an hour. Take a determination not to move for the hour. If you follow that schedule, you'll make progress. So thereafter, no matter what condition I was in, I didn't sit more than an hour. Even when my practice got good, I still didn't sit more than an hour. Even when it was easy, I still didn't sit more than an hour. I was attached to that idea also. (laughs) It's very easy to get attached. So the first is silence as an ideal in practice. Second is sitting long time as an ideal in practice. The third is one that we all fall prey to, I'm sure. It's samadhi. Of course, samadhi is good practice. 
But our idea of samadhi, or striving for what we think is samadhi, may not be good practice. We come, and of course it's very physically secluded here, and we take the precepts, and we start acting like a yogi, and we get our senses get pretty well secluded. And after we practice for a couple of days, or maybe a couple of weeks, the hindrances quiet down a little. That's not to say that you don't have hindrances, but they quiet down quite a lot, actually. And so we get, the mind gets very secluded. And so mindfulness gets good, the energy gets good. And we say, hey, where's my concentration? We look for, or we have this idea that tranquility of mind and body, where there's just maybe one or two objects an hour, it's very soft and quiet, and just so easy and subtle, and the mind doesn't do anything else, is good practice. This is our idea of samadhi for some of us. And so when yogis come in to report, they say, my concentration is no good. So I say, well, tell me about your practice. Well, I sit down and I note rising, falling, and I note wandering mind, and I note pain, and I note this, and I note that. Actually, they describe their objects very clearly, and they describe them quite continuously, and yet they say their concentration is no good. We're doing vipassana meditation here. We're not doing samatha. In vipassana we have many objects. And they're different, and they're changing. So with good mindfulness, we're going to see many different objects in the body and the mind. Concentration develops even seeing many different objects. You can be very concentrated and have tremendous amount of objects in one sitting. And yet people don't think, or it doesn't feel like, the tranquility and the calmness and the just the softness that we think is good concentration. It happens in when you do samatha or jhana practice, you may get that type of tranquility where the mind is just calm, no other objects, just a single object. There isn't a sense of change or high frequency of objects. But in vipassana, there's going to be many objects and they're going to change. The tranquility comes not in the objects, but in the ability of the mind to see those objects clearly. The mind stays still, the objects come in. This is the tranquility of vipassana. But if we think that we have to get somehow calm in body and mind and very few and soft objects, we may be attached to the idea or the ideal that this type of tranquility is good practice. That attachment can breed all sorts of disappointment and aversion to what you're experiencing or pride when you do get a little bit concentrated. The whole slew of negative or unwholesome mental factors can arise because we get attached to and may not know that we're attached to an idea about tranquility being good vipassana practice. I don't have any personal stories to talk about in relation to samadhi because I never had any. (laughs) If you find that you're 
somewhat preoccupied with any of these topics. Silence and it's too noisy here, my roommate's too noisy, I can't sleep at night because it's too noisy, the pipes make too much, the staff makes too much noise. Or if you find that I can't sit long, I want to sit longer, I'm not sitting long enough, I've got to try to sit another half hour, I've got to get up to two hours, I've got to get up to three hours, I've got to get up to however many. Or if you find that my concentration is no good, I just, there's no tranquility. If you're kind of obsessed with this type of thinking, if this is the thoughts running around in your practice, you might just look to see whether you're attached to some idea or some ideal about what is good practice. So what is good practice? If this isn't good practice, what is? Silence is also good practice. If you practice silence, and if you note the disturbances to your silence, this is good practice. When you note, when it's noisy, note hearing instead of anger. Hearing, hearing. External sounds are not disturbances and disruptions to practice. They're objects to be noted. If you're sitting and you want to sit longer and you find yourself kind of struggling with your body or your mind in practice, you might reconsider the instructions to sit an hour, walk an hour. Be continuous. Being continuous is the key to mindfulness, energy, and concentration. And you can do it sitting or walking. The texts, the, in, the, in, the, in the Buddhist texts, there are many instances of beings, monks and nuns, maybe lay people also, being or getting enlightened while walking. You don't have to be sitting for 16 hours before you get enlightened. You might just take a couple of steps. <laughs> But you have to find your own balance. I mean, you do have to recognize that some external conditions are disruptive to practice. You know, if you hang out on the side of the building where the staff play or live or work, it's not going to be so conducive to your practice. And if you don't sit an hour at a time, or 45 minutes, whatever the schedule is, if you're into half-hour sits, half-hour walk, half-hour sits, you may not develop the energy and the concentration to really come to know the nature, the true nature of phenomena. So you do have to work with these things, the silence and the long sittings, or the still sittings. If you actually came and sat with the intention to not move for one hour, and just really worked with that as your sitting practice, you'll find it very beneficial. In all cases, or in all instances, it's applying the mind to the object, the primary object or secondary objects, and sustaining the mind on the object, primary or secondary. Irritation is a secondary object. Hearing is a secondary object. Desire for any of these is a secondary object. All to be noted. So these are the first three that I wanted to talk about. After we've been here for a while now, six, I don't know, six or seven weeks, I guess, 
Sometimes yogi mind starts taking over. Yogi mind is heightened sensitivity to everything, especially other people. <clears throat> and new ideas or yeah, new ideas or our ideal of practice go undergoes some shifts or new things kind of enter our mind. The next one I want to talk about is what I call diet and disease. <laughs> Anybody here who doesn't have a food trip? <laughs> it happens that when we come to retreat, we have our own diet at home. When we come to retreat, we have to accept or eat the diet here, and we get pretty concerned that we stay healthy. Of course, I don't think anybody's complaining about the food here. They'd be out of touch if they were. But still, there can be a sense that sometimes conditions arise in our practice. Some sensation, some feeling, some body stuff that just doesn't quite feel right. And we might begin to wonder, protein deficiency. <laughs> Vitamin deficient. Maybe I'm not getting enough. I used to eat meat. Maybe I'm not getting enough meat. We haven't had any orange juice. Am I getting my vitamin C? Or we get a sniffle, and we're sure it's some major disease, or some sensations in the body that we're not familiar with. Or This is not to say that some people don't actually get diseased and have to care for their body. It's true, and you do. But the mind can take little things and magnify them into big things, all out of proportion to what's really going on. When I first started coming to IMS about 15 years ago, I had been experimenting with my diet some, and I was at the time eating uh, just vegetables, nuts, and fruits and grains without any spices, sugar, salt, no preservatives of any kind, no sugar, honey, anything like that. So I was eating a pretty strange diet. And when I came here, they were serving lots of dairy. And if you don't generally eat dairy, and then all of a sudden you start eating a lot of dairy, it really creates havoc with your systems. So I came and I was doing a retreat and my, my, my body was really suffering something awful because of the eating a lot of dairy food. So I went to the teacher who was here at the time, and I told him, oh, this is what's going on, and this is what I've been eating, and this is how I used to eat, and this is what I'm feeling, and da-da-da, and da-da-da. And he was very clear and very simple. He said, the harm you do to yourself from holding on to some idea of perfect or spiritual diet does more harm than eating a McDonald's hamburger. I had to think about that for a little while, but I generally came to realize that it's probably, and it is true actually, we really harm our mind by being so tight, inflexible, not pliant, stiff, rigid, hanging on to views. Later, I went to Burma. I, had been, I remained vegetarian, although I started eating dairy and cheese and the things that 
regular vegetarians eat. And so I'd been vegetarian for about a dozen years or so, and I went to Burma. For those of you who've been to Burma, you cannot be vegetarian in Burma. On the table you get about four different kinds of meat and rice. So take your pick. If you're going to be vegetarian, you're going to be pretty slim, pretty quick. <laughs> but I was, had practiced a little bit by the time I got to Burma, and so I had an attitude of, okay, I'll just accept what's there and eat it. I went through a, few, a couple of weeks of pretty uncomfortable adjustment. But then it got, I got used to eating the, the meat that was there and the food and white rice every meal. And then as I got into my practice, of course, my yogi mind took over and I didn't really catch on. And I was still into this accepting mode, but I was having a lot of strange phenomena happening in my body. So I started thinking, well, it's the food. So at that time I was keeping extensive notes. I'd have a notebook and I would write down, I would write down my experience of each sitting, each walking, and all, you know, my whole meditation. I also started keeping notes of what I had to eat for each meal, trying to figure out what foods caused which feelings, so that I could cut them, <laughs> so I could cut them out of my diet. I was just kind of tolerating and suffering with these painful stuff, and I was trying to figure out, was it the pork? Was it the chicken? Was it that? rice cake thing? What? <laughs> I was trying to be a scientist, I guess. The trick is to just note these sensations. Of course, discomfort comes and comfort comes off and on. Good practice is just to note, ah, here's tightness, here's pleasantness, here's pain, here's twisting, here's bubbling, here's whatever it is. With our idea that, you know, somehow got to have the right food for the right practice, we're going to suffer, because most of the time we're not going to be able to have that food. But there was one last stage in my practice in Asia. I went to Thailand to practice. I'd gotten, I'd spent about four or five years in Burma. I was quite used to the Burmese food by then. Then I went to Thailand to practice about a year ago, a little less than a year ago. And I went to a place where no one spoke English. I stayed in a big monastery. There was only, well, there was a big monastery, but only about three monks there. None of the monks spoke English. I don't speak any Thai. No one in the village spoke any English. So I had about three months of silent practice. I finally got my silence. <laughs> but we would go on alms round, and the people would put the food in the alms bowl, and then we would go back to the monastery and divide it up and then get a little bit of everything. The people where we were, where I was living, are Laotian, or of Laotian extract. They like fermented fish, soup, goop, or something. I'm not sure just what, but it was really fermented fish. And they like a lot of meat and sticky rice. And on sticky rice, it's not white rice, it's really sticky. You touch it and it sticks to you. So you can imagine what it does inside. So, and we were eating, eating out of our bowls. Everything goes into the bowl. Sticky rice, fermented fish, you know, a little bit of vegetables, a little bit of mint, some ice cream, and a Hershey candy bar. <laughs> Stir it up, eat it. 
by that time, no problems. I knew it was going to be uncomfortable. I knew I wasn't going to like it. Didn't matter. I could accept it. My attitude was, accept it, eat it, note what happens. Rather than try to figure it out and avoid and get some food from some cornflakes for breakfast. And this was only one meal a day. If you didn't get it by nine o'clock, that's it. Sorry. The day's over. Eight o'clock the next morning, you could get the same thing again. Mm. Good for practice. Mm. So if you're tripping out about the food here, or about your health, or about those strange sensations or feelings or stuff going on in your abdomen and elsewhere, forget the food trips. Just note it. What's happening? Tightness, discomfort, unpleasant, heat, bubbling. Good practice. However, if you do have disease, if you do have some allergies, if you do have some physical condition that you know of, take care of it. Don't think that practice is supposed to deny it. You should accommodate your limitations of your body. And some of us who are getting older have to be careful. Some of us who are younger should have been more careful. But in any case, acknowledge what's real. And if you, get, if you lose touch with what's really happening, check it out with a teacher. They maybe can tell you whether it's really something to be concerned with or whether it's just yogi mind. So that's the fourth topic that I wanted to talk about, diet and disease. The next one is everyone's favorite or everyone's uh, anti-favorite, non-favorite, sleep and sloth. There's a difference, actually, between sleep and sloth. I'll explain it. But you might notice, if you've been to IMS before, that some of the teachers suggest, or in their schedules, they say six hours is all right. Some say seven hours. I think this schedule is for seven hours, 10 to 5. Seven hours is on the schedule. Some teachers come and they say, absolutely no more than four. What are you going to do? <clears throat> you obviously can't pick any one of them as an ideal. Some yogis, and in fact one yogi recently in Australia, he said, well, if four hours, I mean, if four hours is better than eight, no hours must be better than four. <laughs> so he started his practice and tried not to sleep. He did quite well, actually, until he got really exhausted, and then his mind just was out of control. <clears throat> if you find that you have a lot of thoughts about how much should I sleep, or did I sleep too much, or should I take a nap, you might consider whether you have an idea in your mind about how much you actually need. Some people are absolutely adamant, I cannot live without less than, I've got to get seven hours of sleep a night or whatever. Actually, we're not doing so much here physically. We don't need so much sleep. But you should check it out for yourself. If you started with seven, you should be down to less than seven by now. Six or five. 
those of you who are really diligent, maybe four or less. Sleep, I, I never had much problem with sleep. I could, I could manage to follow the schedule. I used to put myself on four hours and take a 12-minute nap after lunch. Four hours at night, 12 minutes after lunch. If I took 15 minutes after lunch, too groggy. If I took only 10, too sleepy. 12 was the key. <clears throat> Scientific again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you, some people have reported that they're trying to actually here, are trying to cut down on their sleep and are actually striving with less than, less sleep than I think they actually need. The mind can get very tense and very sensitized or very sensitive in a not healthy way with lack of sleep. So check it out for yourself if you're really striving to deal with less sleep or if you're really just indulging in too much sleep. One time when we were, several of us were practicing here with Sayadaw, I think the first time he came, there was one woman who was doing quite well and she was, at one point, she was staying up without sleeping and it got to be a couple of days without sleeping, and then it got to be three days without sleeping, and then she was telling Sayadaw that she'd been three days without sleeping, and so Sayadaw was, oh, this is very good. And she was very inspired in her practice, and she had a lot of energy. She was doing quite well. <clears throat> and then Sayadaw started telling other people in the interviews, oh, so-and-so is practicing, not sleeping. So that kind of makes you feel like, oh, I'm not supposed to sleep for practice. And so you, you want to, but you can't. So it stirs up, or it can stir up, all kinds of negative or unwholesome mental states. What Sayadaw didn't know as this woman got on to four days and five days was that she wasn't going to her room to sleep. She was sitting right there, sleeping. She would come in, sit down, after a few minutes, put her head down, It was admirable, actually. She wasn't going to bed, she wasn't laying down, she was really trying, and she did get up to five-something days. But she was also sleeping. When it gets to that point, go lay down, take a nap, get your sleep. One time in Burma, as I said, I used to, Sayadaw, Sayadaw insists, absolutely no more than four hours, and he is tough. So I said, all right, no more than four hours, and I, that was no problem, actually. But one night, after I'd been there for three or four months or something, one night, I don't know if my alarm didn't go off or what, but for some reason, I slept five hours, or I got up after five hours. So I was, at that time, I think I was reporting every day, so when I went to report to Sayadaw that day, you know, I just, you know, gave him my regular report. And he had one question for me. How many hours did you sleep? <laughs> I wanted to say, I, I sleep four hours every night, except last night. <laughs> I didn't, I just said I slept five hours last night. And he said, he just looked so disgusted. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. I, I didn't make excuses, I just, okay, okay. I learned something there. <clears throat> It pays to be honest. 
one of my other teachers in Burma, after I stopped working with Sayadaw, or when Sayadaw went to America, came to America, I had to work with some other teachers. One of my teachers there, when he was doing his practice, he went from one padimoka to the next padimoka without sleeping. That's 15 days. No problems, no ill health, and he wasn't doing jhana practice, entering deep absorptions. Just noting Vipassana like you're doing here. 15 days. And then he went to sleep. Maybe for a long time, I'm not sure. But he does have, even now, in his mid-fifties, he has tremendous energy. He just is a fireball of energy. Very inspiring, actually, to hear and to know him and to see that he's not really attached to it. He doesn't have a whole lot of pride. It's just after I got to know him quite personally, he told me about his own practice. And then he mentioned that he had gone one time 15 days without sleeping. You may have noticed uh, on the tennis court, or the ex-tennis court, what used to be a tennis court down here where people do walking, there's one place where there's these things sticking out of the ground and all the lines. Actually, that's a monk's sema, or an ordination, a place for monks to do ordinations. And it was made, or it was consecrated, or it was given to us by a group of monks from Burma, they came here one time. There was five monks or six monks. And one of them was a very famous Sayadaw named Tongpulu. It is reported, or it is reputed, or it is rumored that this venerable monk <clears throat> didn't lie down for something like 50 years and didn't sleep for something like 35 or more years just went into jhana's absorptions and stayed there for some hours each day and came out and practiced, continued practicing. The power of the mind is phenomenal. If you practice and note rising, falling, lifting, moving, placing, and other secondary objects, you can come to some taste of this power of mind. What's the difference between sleep and sloth? When you stay up and practice for some number of hours and the body gets tired, the body just gets really weak and cannot stay up. This is sleep, time for sleep, go sleep. When you come and you practice and maybe after a few hours or maybe after many hours, you just feel lazy, you feel bored, you just kind of couldn't care less. This is not the time for sleep. This is the time to generate energy. This is just sloth, kind of a sleepiness of mind. It's important to come to know the difference between the two. In your practice, check it out. Find out what is really sleep and what is really sloth. I didn't, I mean, it took me a long time to figure it out. I remember many hours walking where I had to hang on to the wall so I wouldn't fall over or fall asleep. I thought this was good practice, but actually I was exhausted. I should have gone to sleep, but I kept walking, hanging on to the wall so I wouldn't fall over. But there's other times when you're practicing and you just, the mind just doesn't want to do the work. The body's got the energy, but the mind doesn't want to do the work. This is not time to sleep. This is time to really arouse mental energy. When you do sleep, when it's time to go to sleep, 
If you have a habit of sleeping excessively or just kind of hanging out in bed when the alarm goes off, you can pre-program your mind. Make a determination before you go to bed. I want to sleep or I want to get up after four hours, five hours. And be sincere in your determination. I want to do this and go to sleep. You can train yourself to wake up without an alarm clock when you want. And if you do that, use your alarm clock just just as a backup, but train yourself to sleep only as many hours as you wish. There's a lot of different ideas about practice. I've only touched on a few that I had thought of, but I can see that I've talked for quite a while already. There's just one more that I want to mention briefly. And this is the perfect posture practice. Only one little comment. A yogi came to see me a couple days ago. And he said, oh, he says, I see you sitting on that thing over there. No cushions, no cushions. He says, I really want to learn how to sit like that. And I said, don't waste your time. And he said, I really, you know, he says, I think it's good practice to be able to sit like that. And then he told me a story. He said once when he was at a retreat, he was trying to sit and he was uncomfortable sitting and he was just, you know, fidgeting around. So he opened his eyes and he looked around and he saw a yogi sitting over there and he tried to figure out how that yogi was sitting because the yogi was sitting perfect, just so straight or whatever his idea of perfect was. And as he was, you know, everybody was sitting in the hall, as he was sitting there watching him, this yogi just fell over. (laughs) So much for perfect posture practice. I said, didn't you learn your lesson? He said, no, he says he still wants to learn how to sit good. I said, don't waste your time. However you sit is okay. Let me skip the next half a dozen. There's another talk there, more laughs. The things that I've mentioned about silence, about sitting long periods of time, about our ideas of samadhi, our relationship to our diet and our disease or symptoms, perfect posture, these things. It's not that any of these are bad or wrong practice. It's our attitude to them, it's our relationship to them that determines whether it will be a help and inspire our practice and and strive and make us strive to develop energy and mindfulness and concentration, or whether it's a hindrance and brings up comparing mind and self-judgment and disappointment because we can't do it, and anger and these negative mental states. If this is the relationship that you have to any of these ideas or ideals, please let go of the ideal. Just know what's happening in the present moment. Primary objects, secondary objects, seeing people with good posture, hearing about people who sit a long time, listening to the yogis make noise or the staff people make noise, hearing, hearing, hearing. Thinking, thinking, wanting, wanting, irritation, irritation. Note, note, note. Your practice can actually get good noting those things that we usually call disturbances. I have here a whole list of wholesome mental factors that arise 
jest with mindfulness. Of course, to, to arouse mindfulness, of course you have to have faith, you have to have energy, and you have to you know, aim. Aiming is also a mental factor. You have to sustain your mind on the object. This is also a mental factor. You have to want to do it. This is a mental factor. You have to have determination of mind. This is also a mental factor. If you actually see the object, this is a mental factor. If you, if you see many objects, you get concentrated. This is a mental factor. If you get very concentrated, you see things more clearly. Wisdom arises. This is a mental factor. With the arising of all of these, the mind becomes very light and buoyant. This is a mental factor. You don't have so much resistance. You're very pliable mind. These are all mental factors that arise just by trying to note, observe and note, the rising and the falling. We don't even need an idea about what is good practice or right practice. Just note the arising object. In this way, you can come to know what the true nature of good practice is. And if you know the true nature of good practice, you will know what the true path is. And the path will take you to wisdom. I've talked long enough. So why don't we sit for a couple of minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.